Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We are continuing a study of John chapter 3 that we just began last week. And, and this chapter really continues the emphasis on new beginnings. We saw in chapter 2 the new wine. We saw the new temple. And here we're talking about the new birth. And in this chapter we met a man, Nicodemus, who was a Jew. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. This is the highest legal, legislative, and judicial body of the Jews. He is a highly respected teacher. Yeshua calls him the teacher, definite article, of the Jews. Nicodemus, basically, folks, he's the cream of the Jewish crop. Alright? This is one of the most formidable men in the religious systems of Israel. And I want you to remember this, okay? You say, well, there's a lot of people who get high up in a religious system. This system was put together by Yahweh. Alright? This is Yahweh's system that was put together. And he's at the top. But the problem was, by the time of the first century, Judaism was apostate. They had departed from Yahweh and he had departed from them. So he's at the top of this religious system that it's an empty system now. And to Nicodemus, this high-ranking religious official, Yeshua says to him, you must be born again. All your accomplishments won't get you in the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. I don't care how high you are on this rung of Judaism, it won't, it won't cut it. You have to be born again. He says in John 3, 3, Yeshua answered and said to him, Truly, truly, which is amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus' brand of Judaism didn't understand the need for a new birth. The Pharisees thought one birth, that into Judaism, was all you really needed. They thought they were good. The kingdom of God was guaranteed them because they were born a Jew. Notice what John the baptizer says to these Pharisees. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Not a modern day preacher, okay? Not worried about politically correctness or offending anybody. He, I think he wanted to offend them, okay? You bunch of snakes. These are the reli- top of the religious chain he's talking to. Alright? You bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And watch what he tells them. Do not suppose that you will say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. See, that was their justification. Well, we're children of Abraham. We're Jews. We're born of Abraham, so everything's going to be alright. He said, no, that's not going to cut it. You can't go based on your physical birth. It's not going to get you into the kingdom of God. For I say to you, that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, for the Jews in Yeshua's day to be born a Jew was to be born in the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus thinks that his birth alone as an Israelite assures him of seeing the kingdom of God. But Yeshua tells him his natural birth as an Israelite won't save him. And that he must be born from above. Now notice what Paul said about Israel in Romans 9.6. He says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So, Paul's telling us, well, there's really two Israels. 
See, they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. The purpose of this distinction is to show that the covenant promises that God made have respect to is not Israel after the flesh, but to true Israel. And true Israel is Yeshua and all those who trust in Him. Therefore, the unbelief, the rejection of ethnic Israel as a whole in no way interfered with the fulfillment of God's promises. Nicodemus was an Israelite after the flesh, but he was not a true Israelite. And that's what Yeshua is trying to tell him. Just as he was born into the nation Israel, he had to be born into the true Israel. Now notice his response to Yeshua's statement that he had to be born again. This is a leader, high-ranking religious official. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Can he do that? He interprets Yeshua's use of anathen, again, to mean born again. Now, we said it's, it's better translated born from above, but you can see that he translates it born again. It's it's word that can be translated either way. Again, it has a double meaning. can be again or from above. So Nicodemus takes the again. Now, he didn't understand what Yeshua was talking about at all. all right? He didn't have a clue, and that's why he says this stupid statement. Can a man uh, crawl into my mother's womb again? Is that what I'm supposed to do? I mean, he knows that's ridiculous. He knows that's not the literalistic response the Lord is talking about. His response, this literalistic response is marked with unbelief. And, and so he replies with this crassly, literalist, literalistic interpretation of what Yeshua said as a way of really, I think, just expressing scorn. Like, that is ridiculous. What do you mean born again? How do I be born again? You ever heard that from other people? They talk about born. What do you mean born again? How do, you know, how do, how does that happen? He knew he couldn't crawl back into his mother's womb. You know, that really wasn't his question. So Yeshua responds to him. All right, Yeshua tells him you gotta be born again, verse three. He goes, what does that mean? I gotta crawl in my mother's womb? So Yeshua's clarifying it for him. Let me, let me tell you, let me say it in a different way. Maybe you'll get it this time. All right, Yeshua said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, we've seen this truly, truly, amen, amen, again and again. It's a unique way of drawing attention to a very significant, trustworthy statement from Yahweh. So Nicodemus' misunderstanding leads Yeshua to say it slightly different. So what he said in verse 3 was you need to be born again. Nicodemus didn't get it. So he said, let me put it this way to you. You need to be born in water and spirit. So whatever that means, it's something that Nicodemus should have said, oh, okay, now I get what you're saying. I didn't get the born again thing, but now water and spirit, that clicks. All right? Yeshua says in verse 3, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Now here he says you can't enter just in case, I want to make it real clear for you, okay, Nicodemus. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of water and the Spirit. So he's saying the same thing, but he's saying it in a different way so Nicodemus will get it. So I just think it's, it makes clear sense here that what he's saying in verse 5 is something that Nicodemus understood. All right, Nicodemus got this. Now, there is a lot of controversy today over this little phrase, born of water and the Spirit. Can you imagine that? Controversy over something in the Bible. Now, the definite article here translated the before spirit is absent in the Greek. The translators put that in there for us because we're dumb and we can't figure anything out for ourselves. So they give us their interpretation of what it means. 
See, they, they wanted to clarify here the spirit. Spirit is the word pneuma. Now, pneuma means breath, wind, spirit. And so the translators say, well, he's talking about the Holy Spirit here, so let's put the in there and let's capitalize it. Okay, so it's the spirit, all right? Well, I think that's probably good. I think that's what it does mean. But if he'd have just left it the way it was, it helps us see things better if they're in the original language of this text. Now, let me ask you a question here. What do you think is the most common understanding of water in this verse? Take a wild guess. Baptism. Amazing, right? Well, whenever you see water in the Bible, everybody runs to baptism. You got water, you got to get, you have to have a tank, all right? Get them in the water, get them, you know, that's the most common interpretation. The word water here is understood by the majority of commentators, contemporary commentators, to refer to Christian baptism. Although there's little agreement among them about what water and spirit mean. How does the spirit connect with that? They, they can't really answer that question, but they just say, oh, it's definitely water. Now, some commentators take water as an allusion to the water of baptism. And they take the spirit as referring to the Holy Spirit. Well, but really, if you look at that view, according to it, spiritual birth happens only when a person undergoes water baptism and as a result experiences regeneration by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, it's a ritual that you do, and because you do it, God gives you life. Thanks for doing that. I'm going I'm to reward you and give you a new life. Because you got wet. Alright? Now, in considering audience relevance, which hopefully we consider every time we come to the Bible, alright? Who's the Lord talking to here? Nicodemus, right? We all agreed on that? And they do like this. Nicodemus, okay? <laughs> That's who he's talking to. When does Christian baptism even come into play? It can't come into play until after Pentecost, right? The birth of the church. So, how is Nicodemus going to... Oh yeah, you must be referring to something that hasn't happened yet. Christian baptism. I get it. He's trying to explain something to Nicodemus. How is Nicodemus going to get this? If he's talking about baptism? See, people remove the Bible from its original setting, and then they make it say whatever they want it to say. Whatever he's saying, Nicodemus gets. Alright? So it can't be Christian baptism. And it's interesting, Yeshua never mentions baptism again in trying to clarify this new birth to Nicodemus. Another view proposed by many scholars is that water is an allusion to the amniotic fluid, which a fetus develops you know, in the mother's womb. Other scholars see it as euphemistic reference to semen without which natural birth is impossible. And there's rabbinic literature quite often refers to male semen as water, rain, dew, and similar things like that. So this interpretation understands water to refer to normal physical birth, which is common to everybody. And the Spirit refers to spiritual birth, which is essential for life in the kingdom. This view assumes two births are in view, a physical birth and a spiritual birth. But the problem, one of the problems with that, there's a lot of them, but one of the problems with that is the Greek construction here. The construction favors one birth rather than two. If two were in view, there'd be a normal, there'd be a normally be a repetition of the preposition before the second noun. Also, the entire expression of water and the spirit is equivalent to anothen from above. See, if there's, if there's a genuine parallelism here between verse three and verse five, and this argues that there is, then it's not talking about two births, it's talking about one birth. And here's my question here, in this view. 
So the Lord's talking to Nicodemus saying, you've got to be physically born, Nicodemus. He'd say, okay, I think I got that one covered. What's next? Why do you tell someone who has already been physically born, you have to be physically born? That just makes no sense, all right? If, he's, if you're talking to him, he's born. You don't need to say that you have to be born physically, all right? Nobody's going to be born spiritually that never came into being physically, all right? So it's just kind of a, a dumb, I think, view. The Pillar New Testament commentary kind of clears a lot of this stuff up. It says this, The most plausible interpretation of born of water in the Spirit turns on three factors. First, the expression is parallel to from above, an oath in, and so only one birth is in view. You got that? Agree with that? Completely. Okay. One that like I said, the Greek grammar here indicates one, not two different births, one birth. Secondly, the preposition of governs both water and spirit. The most natural way of taking this construction is to see the phrase as a conceptual unity. There is a water spirit source, and he's quoting here from Murray Harris, that stands at the origin of this regeneration. Thirdly, Yeshua berates Nicodemus for not understanding these things. Now, get this third point, all right? He is berating Nicodemus for not understanding these things as a role as Israel's teacher. Wait a minute, you're a teacher and you're not getting this? He's a senior professor of the Scriptures. And this, in turn, suggests we must turn to what Christians call the Old Testament. Not this Christian, but some Christians call that the Old Testament to begin to discern what Jesus had in mind. You understand what he's saying here? He's saying Nicodemus got this, obviously, because he's rephrasing it, so Nicodemus will get it. So where would Nicodemus understand this if he's going to understand it? It'd be from the Scriptures. So he said, well, obviously, this is in the Hebrew Scriptures somewhere, because Nicodemus is a teacher of Israel, so he's got to understand this. So what we need to do is we need to go back into the Tanakh and try to figure out what's he talking about. Not make up stuff that's current to our contemporary society, but find out what did Nicodemus think about this? Well, as we look at the Tanakh, we see that Judaism expected the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God to be the age of the Spirit. Alright? When the Spirit came, there's going to be a pouring out of the Spirit in the new age. That's an important part of the new covenant. Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. Joel says, it will come about after this, I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. That's that's what's going to happen in the New Covenant. As the old ends and the new comes into being, there's going to be a pouring out of the Spirit. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit in these days. And I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So he's going to pour out the water. He's going to pour out the spirit. Here we see this connection, a water-spirit connection. But really, most important to our discussion here on this water-spirit issue is Ezekiel 36. All right? The promise of the new covenant. He says, I will take you from the nations where you were all the lands and bring you into your own land. This is a promise of the reclamation of Israel. I'm going to bring you back into the fold. Israel's been scattered. Now, most people, dispensationalists, will take this as a physical regathering and they're looking for it in some future day. This is a spiritual event. And this event already happened. The Lord gathered the nations together. That began at Pentecost, people. Calling the people back. He's going to bring them back. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. He's going to bring them back. He's going to cleanse them. You'll be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. That's the promise of the new covenant, people. He says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to observe my ordinances. So he's going to cleanse them. He's going to put a spirit within them. We condense this so we can see both of them. He says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. I'll put my spirit within you. So here, water and spirit come together. The first to signify the cleansing of impurity. The second to depict the transformation of the heart that will enable the people to follow God. So the revelation that Yahweh would bring cleansing and renewal as water by a means of the spirit was clear in the Tanakh. Okay, this understood. That's why when he first says born again, I don't get it. How about if I say it this way? Born of water and a spirit. Does that bring you back to Ezekiel 36, Nicodemus? He evidently meant that unless a person experienced the spiritual cleansing and renewal of the spirit, he couldn't enter the kingdom of God. Something has to happen. So he says born of water and spirit. The article's not there. Just born of water and pneuma. As I said, of here governs both water and spirit. This means that Yeshua is clarifying regeneration. Born To be born again is to experience regeneration. He's clarifying this regeneration is a cleansing. It's a transformation. And by using both terms together, he's describing the new birth. He's not saying that two separate things have to be present for regeneration to happen. So he goes on in verse 6, he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. He's just continuing to clarify for Nicodemus what this exactly means. Now he's using a contrast here, flesh and spirit. That's the contrast. Now, in the Greek, it's sarx and pneuma. In Paul's letters, he will often contrast these two words, sarx and pneumas. But in the fourth gospel, the contrast only appears here. This is the only time John gives us this contrast. In the synoptic gospels, we find it in Mark, Mark puts these contrasts together also in Yeshua's prayer, Mark 14.38. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit, the pneuma, is willing, but the sarks is weak. Now, what's the context here of flesh in John 3.16 and Mark 14.38? You know, if you're thinking in terms of Pauline thought, you think, well, that's, you know, depravity of man. No, this is just human frailty. It's not sinful nature. It's just humanness he's talking about. And until now, man has only thought in terms of birth in human terms. The seed of man bears children. Man is begotten by the seed of a human father and becomes flesh when he is born into the kingdom of this world. But Yeshua tells Nicodemus that man can only enter the kingdom of God when man is born of the heavenly father. Born from above. Earthly life comes to man only from an earthly father. Eternal life comes only from a heavenly father. And I I wish we could get this whole picture of being born of God, born from above. We are children of God. That's what he called the sons of God in the Old Covenant. B'nai Elohim, your children, your sons of God. Now he calls us sons of God. We are in a very unique place in God's family, people. We are his children. So Yeshua is saying, no longer is being in covenant with God a question of being born into the right physical line, into the line of Abraham, but being born from above through the action of the Holy Spirit by means of the life-giving water to become children of God. 
The only reality that flesh can produce is flesh. Okay? You understand that, right? That's all flesh can do, is reproduce flesh. The spiritual kingdom of God can only be entered by that which is spirit. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 15. Now I say this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Because flesh can't get in. That which is spirit can be generated only by the Holy Spirit. The point is that natural human birth produces people who belong to an earthly family of humankind, not the children of God. Only the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. Look what Paul says in Romans 8, 8, and 9. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you, believers, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. This means that man of the flesh cannot please God. Now, when it says those who are in the flesh can't please God. Let me ask you something. Does faith please God? Yeah, the Bible says faith pleases God. But those who are in the flesh can't please God. So well, I guess they can't have faith, right? Amen. Those in, the faith, those in the flesh can't just say, I think I'll believe. No, you have to have a new birth. They need an operation of the Holy Spirit which takes you out of the flesh and puts you in the Spirit because those in the flesh can't please God. And we know that faith pleases God, so those in the flesh could please God if they acted on faith. This would have been difficult for Nicodemus to grasp. He viewed acceptance by God like so many of his contemporaries. He thought that his heritage, his ancestry, his position, his works made him what he was. Made him adequate to be part of the kingdom of God, to be acceptable before God. He had to realize that he needed a complete spiritual cleansing. That's hard to deal with when you're at the top of the religious ladder and you say all these accomplishments are nothing. You need a new birth. Wow, that's just not, I don't like that. You know, people today also need to realize it, just like Nicodemus did. Because I think most people today are relying on themselves and what they have done for acceptance with God. They are. And the most, you know, if you have confusion in talking to someone, because everyone's a Christian, this is a Christian nation. If you live here, you're a Christian, right? That's how it works. So if you want to distinguish who is and who's not, just ask them. If you were to die right now and stand before God in heaven and he asks you, why should I let you in my kingdom, what would you tell him? You know what their response will be? I did, I did, I go, I gave, I, 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 I. And you, eh, wrong answer, okay? Someone who has trusted Christ and understands the gospel will say, there's no reason he should let me in except I'm trusting in his son and what he has done for me. I can't do anything on my own to get into heaven. Only what Christ has provided for me, that's the only, that's the only way I can be accepted. And that's the right answer, people. It's all about God. It's not about us. Now, just in case we missed it, Yeshua says it again in verse 7. Do not be amazed. Because Nicodemus is probably a little bit shocked. What? You must be born from above. I'm repeating this, Nicodemus, because I told it, I told this once to you. You didn't get it. Then I explained it using the language of the Tanakh, and I hope you get it. But that's what I'm talking about. You need to be born again. Now, the Greek again here is a nothing again. It means... From above. He needs to be born. And we know it. John's using it that way because if you look at 31, he says, He who comes from above is above all. So he's talking about not again there, but he's talking about from above. 
And I think that's what it favors in this view. The view is you need to be born from above. Now, Nicodemus shouldn't have been amazed at the idea that there's spiritual birth in addition to a physical birth since the Tanakh spoke of that. And this guy had this down. He knew what the Bible said. He just didn't know what it meant. But it wasn't only the Tanakh that taught this. All right? The intertestamental literature also taught us this. Jubilees 125 says this, I will create in them a Holy Spirit. I will cleanse them. I will be their father and they shall be my children. So there's a cleansing here of water and there's this spirit. Now the Essenes of Qumran wrote in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls that God would cleanse man of all wicked deeds by means of a Holy Spirit. Like purifying waters, He will sprinkle upon him the Spirit of truth. So this was the idea of the day that people understood this. But Nicodemus wasn't getting it. And these texts revealed that entrance into the kingdom is a spiritual matter. It's not a matter of physical descent or merit. It's not a matter of what church you go to. It's not a matter of being baptized. It's not a matter of any of those things. It's a matter of trusting Christ. This was a revelation that most Jews of Yeshua's day, including Nicodemus, they just totally missed. Now notice what he says here. He says, the first you here in this text is singular. Do not be amazed that I say to you, Nicodemus. The second you is plural. Referring to the general principle that's applicable to all human beings. So I'm saying to you, Nicodemus, but you, everybody, has to be born again. The second you sets Yeshua against not just Nicodemus, but the entire human race. The must here is day in the Greek. It's a present active indicative, which literally means it's necessary. It has to happen. All right. You have to be, there's no other way. This is the only way. You have to have a birth from above. Now, from this point on in the Gospel, Yeshua makes no further mention of being born again or being born in the Spirit. Nor does He mention the kingdom, except in His defense in 1836. But He does mention repeatedly the fact that you have to have life or eternal life because being in the kingdom and having life are the same thing. So the other Gospels use, the synoptics use this kingdom life more than Lazarus does in the fourth Gospel because he uses the word life and eternal life because he's trying to make that clear. Alright, verse 8 he says, now he, again, he's still explaining to Nicodemus what the new birth is, what birth from above. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. Alright, you got that so far? We know about wind, right? It blows and you hear it. But you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. He says, well, that's what it's like with everyone's born spirit. Alright? Now, what's interesting here, the Hebrew word ruach, wind, spirit, breath, and the Greek word pneuma, they all mean breath, wind, spirit. And that's what it says here. The pneuma, and then it ends with pneuma. But, you know, the, our commentators, our, our translating people have changed it so you understand. You know, it's like I said, sometimes it's very helpful. Other times it's, it's confusing. All right? But there's a play on words here. All right? It's a very clear play on both meanings of the word pneuma in this passage. And biblical scholars point out that we, we don't get the sense of this word play when it's translated in English. There's also a word play here in the word sound. You hear the sound of it. Sound here is literally voice. It's a word play suggesting the sound of the wind, but the voice of the Spirit. See, the coming of the Holy Spirit is not something that can be explained by man, like the wind. He says, but it happens. You know, the wind can't be seen, but you hear the sound. Well, the Spirit can't be seen, but the Spirit's voice is heard in the hearts of those who have been regenerated in the new birth. Now, what are the similarities here between wind and the Spirit? Well, first, both Spirit and the wind operate sovereignly. 
Okay, no one controls the wind. It does what it wants, blows when it wants, when it wants. Man does not, cannot control either one of these events. Second, we perceive the presence of both only by their effects. You can't tell, you know, you see the trees blowing. That's how I tell if it's windy out. I look outside, the trees are moving. Okay, it's windy. The waves are high. It's windy out there. All right? Third, you can't explain their actions since they arise from unseen and partially unknowable factors. It's mysteries. You can't explain this. That's what he's saying. You can't explain why someone receives a new birth, someone doesn't. Just like the wind. Why is it blowing this way and not blowing that? You can't explain that. So he's making it clear that the new birth is a work of the Holy Spirit. When you're born again, you're born by the Spirit. The new spiritual life that comes in the new birth comes from the Spirit. He makes that really clear later in John 6. He says, it's the Spirit that gives life. That's it, people. Boom, the Spirit does it. So the new birth and the new life that comes with it is a work of the Holy Spirit. We don't cause the Spirit to bring about the new birth by anything that we do, any, any more than we make the wind blow in a certain direction. That's the analogy. You don't make the wind blow, you don't control the Spirit. As the water and the Spirit birth, you know, I, I really believe is grounded in Ezekiel 36. There may also be an allusion here to Ezekiel 37. You know what happens in Ezekiel 37? Huh? The valley of dry bones. And God's breath, His Ruach, goes over. You know, He says, can these bones live? Oh Lord, you know. And the Spirit of God goes over these dry bones and they all come together and joints and sinew and skin, they all come on them and they come to life. And it's a picture of resurrection. And that's the thing He's trying to sell. Just as God's breath comes upon the valley of dry bones and they're revived, God's people come to life when His Spirit comes upon them. Verse 8 stresses the enigma of why some people believe when they hear the Gospel and others don't. Why do some people believe and others don't? It's all about the Spirit of God. Alright? Lazarus later asserts that no one can believe unless they're drawn by the Spirit of God. The Spirit's got to do it. So being born again is the same as being born of water and the Spirit. They are efficient. They are both the efficient cause of regeneration. Remember we said being born again is talking about regeneration. It's a new life that God gives. Being born of water, Spirit, it's regeneration. Titus 3 supports this reading. Now watch what Titus 3 says. This is Paul. He said, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. How do so many people miss that? It's not about what you do, but it's according to His mercy. Watch, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what He told Nicodemus. Whom He poured out upon us richly through Yeshua the Christ, our Savior. The renewing of the Holy Spirit is a further explanation of regeneration. Clark, Gordon Clark translates it this way, the washing affected by regeneration is the renewal. See, the Holy Spirit cleanses us through regeneration, so being born of water and being born of the Spirit is the same thing. Not two separate things, it's the same thing. Now, before we leave this text, I want to give you five characteristics of regeneration, because that's what this is about. This is the new birth, is being born again, is regeneration, being born from above. So, let me give you, you know, five characteristics of this to hang your hat on. Five characteristics of regeneration. Regeneration means to bring to birth again. It's a work that a creature cannot do. In Ephesians, 
we're taught this. It's solely a work of God, all right? That's, what you have to, that's the first thing you got to get about the new birth, about regeneration. It is a work of God. It's nothing you do. Ephesians put it this way, Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. We're dead, He made us alive. When a person is dead, he doesn't see, he doesn't feel, he doesn't act. Until God gives a person life, he's dead to spiritual things. Man is passive in the new birth. He does no more to produce his own birth than Lazarus did to produce his own resurrection. Look at this text. We'll get to it. John 11. When he had said these things, he's standing at the grave of Lazarus. Lazarus is dead four days. Now, the Jews believed that the Spirit hung around for three days. So, Yeshua waited for four days. Let's make sure the Spirit's gone. All right? I want you to understand this is over. This guy's dead and gone. All right? He's standing. He rolled the stone away. Lazarus inside. You know, remember his sister said, by now he stinketh. Good King James Elizabethan English. You know, he stinks by now. Well, that, yeah, he would have. All right? So, he stands at the grave and he yells out, Lazarus, come forth. Did Lazarus lay there and think, I don't know if I want to listen to him or not. I don't know if I want to get up. I'm kind of enjoying being dead here. You know, my flesh is starting to rot. It really feels good. I think I'll just... Did, did, did Lazarus have within himself the ability to obey that command? Well, then why did he command him to do it? He was dead. He had no ability at all. You understand dead means nothing, right? Not mostly dead. Because mostly dead is somewhat alive, but dead, totally dead, okay? <laughs> you Princess Bride fans. <laughs> Unsaved man, natural man does not have the ability to believe the gospel. Regeneration is a work of God whereby we are made alive. And just giving the word Lazarus come forth, Lazarus got up and he came out and he said, loose him, get those things off him, set him free. Now, in our text, when Yeshua says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We brought this up before, but he uses the passive voice for born, which means that he's declaring the necessity of a condition that somebody else must bring about on our behalf. The passive voice expresses the subject being acted upon. Yeshua told Nicodemus, you can't birth yourself spiritually, so you can't enter the kingdom of God. Somebody else must birth you, and apart from the new birth, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, regeneration is solely a work of God. Most people don't get that. Most people think regeneration is a response to something we do, and God responds and gives us life. We believe He gives us life. Secondly, regeneration is instantaneous act below the level of human consciousness. You don't feel it. It's not like... Wow! You know, you ever seen that old commercial with the white knight with the lance and the guy turns all white? You know, it's not like that, okay? You don't feel it any more than you feel your physical birth. The earliest thing I remember was when I was about four years old. Those were my earliest memories, you know? I don't remember being born. It was below the level of my consciousness. I, because I was dead... I, I have no conviction of sin. I mean, the dead man just doesn't feel much. The new birth is non-experiential. It's mysterious. You can only recognize it by its effects. All right? You see it, and that's what he talks about here. The wind blows where it will. I, when I did become a Christian, I didn't understand. I didn't know what was happening. I know I heard about the Gospel. I believed it. And the next thing I knew, things were changing. And I remember vividly, 
as if it was yesterday. I'm walking in the mall with Kathy, and she said something that made me mad. That's hard to believe, you know. But she said something that made me mad, and I asked God to damn her. All right, and when I did, it was like a knife pierced through my heart, and I was like, "What the heck is going on with me?" And I said, it was in so typical Adam fashion, I said, you made me curse my God. You made me, you know? I, Lord, the woman you gave me, it's her fault. But I, I, I was feeling things that I never felt before. I could, you know, listen, two weeks before that, I remember telling a joke about the crucifixion. And why doesn't Christ eat M&Ms? Because they fall through the scar in his hand. That's how vile I was. I was sick. Okay? And see, that's a bad joke anyway, because the, the hole wasn't in his hand, it was in his wrist. Like the hand won't support crucifixion, it goes right between the two bones there, and then the bones you hang on, it's not going to pull out. Alright? But I was depraved, I didn't care about any of that stuff, I didn't care about God, and all of a sudden, bang, and now I'm feeling things and seeing things, and I'm like, the new birth, it's like the wind. I didn't see it coming, but man, it sure made a difference in my life. Alright? Thirdly, it is affected without means. Now, most Christians believe the means of regeneration is faith. In other words, you believe, then God will give you life. But truth can't be the means of regeneration because before a man can be generated, he's blind. He can't see the truth. He's deaf. He can't hear the truth. He's dead. He can't respond to the truth. Truth can't be the means of the new birth because 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. How are you going to hear foolish things and get regenerated? The increase of light will not enable a blind man to see. The disease of the eye must first be cured. So a man has to be regenerated by the Spirit before he can see, receive truth. It's a work of God. That's why we pray for the lost. There's no other need to pray for them. You know, God's got to do it. If it was up to them, why would you pray? Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You need a new birth before you can see. Now, the Greek text of 1 Peter, I think one twenty three, helps clarify this concept of regeneration without means. It says, you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. Those two prepositions, of and through, are different. The preposition of indicates source. We are born of God. He's the source. Through indicates the instrumentality. The Holy Spirit gives us life, so we receive the Word. Regeneration is a direct act of God on the Spirit of man. It is a spiritual resurrection. It's effective without means. Fourthly, it renews the will. You know, the unregenerate man is unwill, unable to be willing. You know, you, he can hear the Gospel, and that sounds good, but I don't really want it. The natural man doesn't please God. So salvation can't be about human volition. Man cannot be saved. God has to make him willing, and that's the thing. You know, people view Calvinism as God's dragging people into the kingdom, and they're kicking and screaming, I don't want to go. No, He changes the will. Alright? John 1.13, We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. It doesn't have to do with your will. Those who received Yeshua were born of God. They were made willing by a supernatural act. We see the concept of God's supernatural intervention and salvation in a person in Acts 16.14. This is recording the evangelistic efforts of the early Christians spreading the gospel. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, 
a worshiper of God. She's a proselyte. She's a worshiper of God. She's there to worship God, all right? And Paul's preaching the gospel, right? And so it says she's listening. And then it says this, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So she's in there, and all of a sudden, why does it say that? Why didn't it just say she believed the gospel? You think he's trying to tell us something, maybe? The Lord opened her heart. That's what the text says. Now, if you try to deny that the one single reason that Lydia understood and believed the gospel was that God liberally opened her heart, you're denying what this text says. Just to have a little fun with you, Steve Zeisler, commenting on this text, says this. As Paul was speaking, Lydia opened her own heart. Really? And, you know, people sitting there listening to this man, and they're, and they're not reading along and saying, well, that's not what my Bible says. You know? And he writes this. This woman was overtaken by the grace of God, and she opened her heart to the Lord. And opened her home to be a saint. So again, he says, oh, she opened her heart. Third time, Steve. She not only opened her heart, she opened her home. I don't know what translation he's using. But he needs to get rid of that. That's a bad translation, okay? Because the text says the Lord opened her heart. Now, if you've got a problem with that, you've got to deal with it textually. You've got to show this is a textual error. And you can't do that. There's no controversy over this text. That's what it says. The controversy is over what it means. Because we don't like what it means. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament used the phrase, open her heart. And the Bible gives the whole credit for this opening to God's power, not man's. Arminianism insists that man's free will must first furnish the willingness or the power. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God furnishes the power. So what are we going to believe? And you get texts like this, they're just ungetoverable. God opened her heart. That's all. That's all there is to it. All right? That's how come Lydia listened. He opened her heart, what? So she would respond to the things spoken of. Because she couldn't respond. How did Lydia become a Christian? Because the Lord opened her heart and she responded. That's regeneration. That's being born from above. Now, bless you. Theologians have developed what they call the Ordo Salutis. The Ordo Salutis is the order of salvation. Now, it's a little bit technical, but I just want to lay this out quickly because I think it's important that you understand that there's a logical order given in Scripture as to how this all works out. Now, you're not going to go to, you know, Philippians chapter 3 and it lays out the order of salutis. All right? We have to take the Bible and pull things from here and there, put them together in a logical order and try to figure out what they're saying. And, and usually, this order of salutis is indistinguishable in a person's life. All right? This is the logical order. This is what the Scripture teach called the Ordo Salutis, or the Order of Salvation. First of all, you have foreknowledge. That starts out, alright? Foreknowledge. We see that in Romans 8.29. For those whom He foreknow, He also predestined to become conformed to the image. He conformed them to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, some understand foreknowledge as God looking into the future and see what someone would do, and then say, oh, I see. I see them. They're going to believe. I choose them. What's the problem with that? God's learning by observation. Oh, look at God. Did it ever occur to you that it never occurred to God? Huh? He knows everything, okay? So he's not learning by observation. That would make him not omniscient. He'd have to learn things. So he's watching, trying to figure things out. No, that's not true. 
And it's not what he foreknew, but whom he foreknew. The word foreknew is from the Greek word prognosko. The background of this term is located in the Hebrew Scriptures, where for Yahweh to know refers not simply to knowledge, but to covenantal love. Adam knew Eve. And they had a child. Okay, so it doesn't mean, oh, I know who you are. Yeah, that's the only other woman around. So yeah, I know her. No. It's new means the sense of love, an intimate love relation. So whom God loved, He brought into the covenant. This is an unbroken chain here in Romans 8. Those He foreknew, those He loved beforehand, He also predestinated. And those He predestinated, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. It's an unbroken chain of salvation. All He loved beforehand, He predestined. He justified and He glorified. Now we know that everybody's not going to be justified. So that must mean that God doesn't love everybody, which is taught in the Scriptures. But people don't like that either, so they just say, smile, God loves you. Maybe not. Okay? Maybe you shouldn't have no cause to smile. Foreknowledge and then predestination. So the Ordo Salutis begins in eternity past with God choosing individuals and then predestined. He predestined them to be conformed to the image of His Son, to be like His Son. Now the Greek word translated predestined is porizo, it comes from a word with which you get horizon. The horizon is, it marks out boundaries. So that's basically what he's saying. He draws the line. He establishes limits. He determines who will be called into his family. The predestined in Romans 8.29 means that in eternity past, God drew some lines. He established a boundary, a circle. He predestined. It's the most elementary form of their final destination. He determined who would do what. Heaven or damnation. Described by God, not only how we get there, but before we're born. All right, This is an eternity past. Foreknowledge, predestination, that is eternity past. That's before you ever thought of, before you ever came into being. God knew you and He loved you. The Scriptures also call this election, predestination. Okay, It's the idea of God choosing those He loves. Choosing them to be part of His family. Choosing them to be in His presence. The gospel is the good news, not of man's act of choosing Christ, but of Christ's act of choosing man. An election is an idea that's seen all through Scripture. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren. Who are we thanking for your salvation? God. Now, we, should, we should give thanks to you, brethren, because you are smart enough to believe this. That's not what it says. We thank God. Because God has from the beginning chosen you. That's why we thank Him, because He chose you. From the beginning, for salvation, through sanctification of the Spirit and faith in the truth. So they were beloved of the Lord and they were chosen for salvation. Now, thirdly, state of death. I add this to the list because I think it's important for us to understand that even though we were loved beforehand, even though we were chosen and marked out, we were born into this world in a state of death. We were born spiritually dead. All men are born. All, every baby born, every person born is born in a state of spiritual death. That's how they come into this world. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, that's Adam, death through sin. So death spread to all men. That's spiritual death. All men, it spread to everybody. Because of Adam's sin, spiritual death spread to all men. He's the federal head of the human race. When he sinned, we sin. His sin is imputed to all men. Now, in historical theology, man's condition in sin has been called total depravity. Ephesians strongly sets forth the degree of man's total depravity in this verse, and you were dead. <laughs> That's how depraved you. You were, so, you were just dead. 
You're dead in sin, and God acts first to bring about a spiritual resurrection. He makes us alive. This represents the next step in the Ordo Salutis, which is calling a regeneration. This is what we've been talking about. This is what the new birth is. Or it starts out, in eternity past, God said, I love you, so I'm going to choose you to be my own. We're born in this world in a state of death. Then at some point after birth, when we can understand, He calls us. He calls us to be His children. Look at Romans 8.30. Whom He predestined, those He also called. This calling is an effectual calling. God calling dead men to life. This is regeneration. This is spiritual resurrection. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. You know, fallen man in his natural state lacks all power to commune with God. Because man's spiritually dead. Apart from God giving life, he can't understand, he can't perceive, he can't know God. In the Ordo Salutis, we're physically born, spiritually dead. Born in a state of death. Then at some point in our life, God calls us. This is the effectual calling. It's a call from death to life. I remember very well, like I said in my life, at one point I could care less about God, the next point all of a sudden I'm just feeling all this conviction about sin and wanting to understand who He is and read my Bible. It's by grace, it's without means. It's a supernatural act. God gives a person a new heart and then He is born from above. So, so far in the order of Salutis, we have foreknowledge, predestination, state of death, effectual calling. What's next? What happens after we're regenerate? What's the next step in this plan. Faith. Guess what? After you get a new life, you believe. Because now I'm alive. I can believe. That's what's next. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourself. You didn't do it. It's a gift of God. It's through faith. Faith is understanding and assent to the propositions of the gospel. Somebody lays out the gospel for you. You are a sinner. Christ died to pay your sin debt based on nothing in you, nothing about you. He did it totally and completely because He loved you. And the only way you're going to get into heaven is trust what He did for you. People can't believe what they don't know. Faith is belief or trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. It's the response of God's life-giving call. Not the cause of it. Regeneration precedes faith. You've got to be made alive so you can believe. You can't believe if you're dead. What's next? What comes after faith? It's a logical order now. Once you believe, what do you get? You're justified or your salvation. Okay? Salvation. That's what happens next. And they said, believe in the Lord Yeshua. And what happens? You'll be saved. So after you believe... You get salvation. Now, people, this is instantaneous. Okay, you believe and you're saved. It's not like, okay, I believe, now I'm waiting for Him to give me something else. No, you get it when you believe. But you believe, then you get salvation. But you got to understand. See, a lot of people mix up salvation and regeneration. And they put them all together. Salvation follows faith, but regeneration precedes it. The Scriptures are clear that faith in Yeshua is the instrumental precondition of justification. For example, look at Galatians 2.16 where Paul says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, most people don't get that, but through faith in Christ. So you're justified how? By faith in Christ. Yeshua, even we have believed in Christ Yeshua that we may be justified by faith in Christ. So you believe and you're justified, not by the works of the law. It would surely seem impossible to avoid the conclusion that salvation and justification are upon the act of faith. 
or through the inst- instrumentality of faith. God justifies the ungodly who believe in Christ. In a word, He justifies believers. Our next step and final step. Seven points. Isn't that amazing? Seven points in the Ordo Salutis. What a great number. What happens after you believe? And you're saved. Glorification. Glorification, people. Now, this is a this is a concept that you know, especially today, people say, "Okay, you've been saved." You know, most modern people, commentators, will take salvation and make it three tenses. You were saved, past tense, when you believed. You're being saved now, and they're talking about sanctification. You will be saved in the future, and that's glorification. They, they, when you die, you're glorified. All right. Well, let me tell you, glorification is nothing more than dwelling in the presence of God. That's what glorification is. When you dwell in His presence, that's glorified, people. Alright? Look at Colossians 3.14. When Christ, who is our life, or 3.4, I'm sorry. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Christ has been revealed, although most people don't get that. And we have been glorified. Being glorified is essentially being delivered from the damaging, the damage inflicted by sin. And being restored to the perfection of Adam's pre-fall condition in the presence of God. That's glorification. You look at Adam, you look at him in the garden, and he's walking with Yahweh before he fell, before he sinned. And a lot of people say, well, we're restored to that pre-fall condition. We're better than that, people. See, Adam was liable to fall. We're not liable to fall. We're, We're in a position where we are in Christ but we are restored to that position. Yes, we are restored to the garden and the fellowship with God and we walk with God. We can talk with God. We commune and fellowship with Him 24-7. Because we're in His presence and that's what it means to be glorified. It's not, you know... Now I think when we drop this physical body and move into the next realm, it's going to be different. Alright? Let me let the cat out of the bag here, Okay? I had a theological shift lately, and I'm not ready to fully develop it and, and put it out here, but I just I want to throw it out to you to think about, all right? I've always believed and taught, all right, that when we die, we go into the next realm, and we're incorporeal. We don't have a body. I don't believe that anymore. Yeah, I, I just through, through intertestamental literature, through studying a lot of things, here's what... Sit down. Here's what I believe. <laughs> Here's what I believe, okay? I really believe now that when we die, okay, when we leave this physical realm, we will have a body. We will have a spiritual body that is like God's body, all right? We will have a glorified body that's made of spiritual material, all right? And listen, this goes all the way back to to Genesis, all right? He took Abraham out and he showed him the stars. Now, those people believe the stars were God's. The hosts of heaven. He said, look at the stars. Okay? And he says to Abraham, so shall your descendants be. Your descendants are going to be glorified. They're going to be like those stars. They're going to be sons of God is what he is telling him. And I just think that if you study, all the gods had bodies. And I think we're going to have a glorified body that is just incredible and able to do things you can't even imagine right now. So I don't think we're going to be a wisp, a ghost floating around, you know, without something. I think we'll have a spirit. I always had a problem with spiritual body. It never made sense to me. If it was spiritual, it wasn't a body. Because I thought a spiritual is, you know, non-material. That's wrong. It's a spiritual body. It's a body made of spiritual material. I think it will be like Christ's body in the resurrection. 
You could touch it, you could see it, you could feel it, but it could disappear, it could reappear, it could do crazy things, all right? Now, I know he did some of that stuff when he was, you know, before the resurrection, but I write at this point in time, i got to move on, all right? I'm giving, giving everything away here, but it's just, there's some, okay, let's go. <laughs> the more you study, the more exciting it gets, all right? There's so much to learn, people, and so little time, all right? So here's the Ordo Salutis, all right? Foreknowledge, predestination, state of death. That's your birth. That You're born into a state of death. Then at some point in your life, God calls you. He gives you new life. Regeneration, the calling is irresistible. Who he calls, you come, okay? You don't say, no, God, I'm not interested. No, it's an effectual calling, all right? And then once he calls you, you all of a sudden hear the God. You believe it. Well, I believe that. Then, because you believe it, you are saved. You are justified. You are made righteous before God. And now, as believers, we're glorified. We're in His presence. We dwell with Him 24-7. An understanding of regeneration, of being born from above, should cause a deep attitude of gratefulness to Yahweh. We didn't deserve anything that God gives us. We don't deserve life. We deserve wrath. But Yahweh in His love reached out to us. He made us alive. This is the Gospel. Let me give you the Gospel, people. In three simple words, okay? Here's the gospel. Yahweh saves sinners. That's the gospel. All right? Let me break it down for you. Yahweh, the triune Yahweh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of the chosen people. The Father electing, the Son fulfilling the Father's will by redeeming, the Spirit executing the purpose of the Father, and the Son by renewing. Yahweh saves, does everything. From first to last that is involved in bringing man from death to life, from sin to glory, he calls, he keeps, he justifies, he sanctifies, he glorifies. The birth from above is solely a work of Yahweh. So Yahweh saves sinners. Men as he finds them guilty, vile, helpless, unable to lift the finger to do God's will or better their spiritual condition. That's the gospel. God, Yahweh, saves sinners. Apart from the work of regeneration, no one would have ever sought Him. That's what it teaches. No man seeks after God. Everyone would die in his sins. You have to be born from above. Thank God that salvation's of Him. How many of you would have chosen Him? None of you. None of us. It's all of grace. And see, that gives us opportunity to praise you know, and thank Him continually. He doesn't want men to glory in His presence. We don't have anything to glory about. The only thing we have to glory in is who He is. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for the opportunity, Lord, to look at Your Word. I pray that You'd give us insight, Lord, into the teaching of Scripture. I pray we wouldn't be as Nicodemus who seemed to be just so blind and confused. Even though he knew the truth, Yeshua said he had to have a new birth. Lord, thank You for bringing us from death to life, and planting Your truth within us, giving us Your Spirit. I pray You give us a hunger for these things, Lord, that we desire to know them. We desire to walk with You on a daily basis. In every situation, every event, we'd be there with You, communing, fellowshipping. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace. We love You. Amen.